0: Hey everyone, this is Kike Autry, and I'm really excited to share this new episode with you entitled Why Religion? And I get the unique privilege of interviewing Dan Koch, who hosts the podcast You Have Permission, which is probably one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to regularly. I can't recommend it enough. I've included the links to that podcast in the show notes if you're interested in listening, which you should he's a great guy we had a lot of fun and before i say a little bit more about him let me just say that the episode starts with us sort of joking around and laughing and just to give you the context i was impressed that he could pronounce my name kike which a lot of people butcher um as you know i'm from puerto rico my middle name is enrique and uh kike sort of became this nickname that stuck with me for a variety of reasons and um You'll find in the episode that I share one of the most embarrassing stories around that. And so I wanted to give you that context so you're not completely lost. So who is Dan? Dan is the host of You Have Permission podcast. He's currently working toward his doctorate in counseling psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. He focuses specifically on spiritual abuse. His spiritual harm and abuse scale, which we talk about in this episode, was published in May 2022, so last year in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. Dan is currently most interested in overlapping questions and interactions between psychology and religion and spirituality. In this specific conversation, we explore Dan's spiritual and philosophical background. Uh, We talk about him being rooted in the evangelical subculture of California, his time, at university, studying philosophy, how he gets into Greek philosophy, and later Kierkegaard. Uh, We have some good discussion around that. And we, we sort of really get into not only his spiritual harm and abuse scale, what he's working on in terms of his research, but we explore the big topic of religion. Why is religion such a significant reality for humans? And I think Dan has a really deep, and profound and insightful way to kind of frame that reality and so I can't wait for you to access that and to get something out of it as always I want to encourage every listener to share this content with someone that might benefit from it go back and check out the you have permission podcast and if you can if you feel open to this it would mean a lot if you could leave me a positive rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast as always Continue the conversation. Exactly. Oh my gosh! And dude, <laughs> the, hor- the horror no, I, stories. i
1: obviously just giving you shit.
0: Please me give go. me as much shit as you want. Um, <laughs> yeah. The worst, the worst example was when I was in middle school. The vice principal over the loudspeaker was like calling out names for like A, B honor rolls, perfect attendance. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, He got to mine and he said, uh, "Quickie." And so <laughs> to have that nickname in middle school was not very Quicky. nice or fun. No, not helpful. <laughs> not at all.
1: No. Well,
0: man, um, I'm just really grateful for the opportunity. So last minute to connect with you and have this like yeah, very dude. chill conversation. Um, yeah. My my only agenda is to just get to know you better and highlight your work and and just ask you a couple questions that that I Ooh. think you'll enjoy and. So, so Dan, maybe you could just start by just talking a little bit about who you are and uh, what you're up to in terms of your projects. I know that I have some listeners in my podcast that love your podcast. Shout out to Nate Dickerson who's wanted me to have you mm-hmm. on forever and I finally had yeah. the courage to ask you. Uh, but I know there's some people who, you know, won't know who you are, don't listen to the podcast. So maybe you could just kind of introduce yourself and what you're up to.
1: Really quick, do you need to be recording on Zoom, or do I need to be recording on my end?
0: I have audio hijack.
1: Wow, look at that! It just so goes. It just goes. Incredible. So I think I think okay, I think it's going. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, okay, sorry, I was distracted by that. We yeah, asked me that. No question worries. Again? <laughs> oh sure, yeah. No,
0: I'll ask you the question. Um, would would you mind just maybe kind of introducing yourself and, yeah. and some of your projects? Just because there's going to be people that are listening that aren't familiar with you and and what they you're up aren't to. Aren't
1: familiar with me? Isn't that crazy? You need to get a you need to get a new listenership, man. Got it. No, maybe uh... you can help me with that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my name's Dan Coke. I am about to turn forty. I grew up in the Bay Area of California. I grew up like a a punk rock. Kind of kid in what I call California evangelicalism. So definitely white evangelicalism of the American variety, but not of the Southern or Midwestern variety where things can be a bit more strict and harsh and more fundamentalist leaning. I didn't really have that. I was spared most of that. My dad was a therapist growing up. So really? Yeah, like he kind of understood that we needed more tools than just like reading Bible verses and, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> do you, so do you, do you I, know I what have, school he was a part of? Or I mean, was it like Christian counseling or was he a part of any in other that kind of era? So he, I mean, he was a marriage family therapist. That's okay. The MFT. That's the California yeah. licensure. And so he did, you know, regular psychotherapy. I would say from talking with him, definitely uh kind of a cbt flavor you know the the phrases that he would always use are like self talk sure you know talking with people about their self talk and you know what i would call automatic thoughts yeah yeah my language and uh they they did see a lot of christian clients they at the time when he when he was in like a group practice when i was a kid you know they they called it like i forget the name it was like hope counseling or something and okay. it was you know, everybody there was a practicing Christian, but they weren't doing biblical counseling, poetic right. counseling, these kind of faux approaches <laughs> uh, to to psychotherapy. So they were all couple doctors, couple masters level. My dad was a masters level. Coach. Gotcha. So, so I did have you know, I had a little bit of like uh, balance in terms of not a not such a strict environment. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of my background, and then. Played in a rock band for ten years called Sherwood. Um, Are you guys on Spotify? Oh yeah. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so you were a rock star. That's
0: amazing, man. Nah, not a rock star. It was kind
1: of the the like Vans Warped Tour, you know, two thousands like emo peak emo kind of time. And then I became a commercial composer for about a decade, and and uh, I was always very interested in theology. During those years, I was a philosophy major in undergrad. Oh, okay. And then, uh, sort of, as commercial music got kind of boring for me, I pivoted and and literally tonight is my last class for a PsyD, a doctorate in counseling psychology. Wow, congratulations! Still, That's great. Thank you. Still got some internship hours left to do, but sure. you know the the coursework is done, and. Yeah, so I, I kind of focus on religious issues, um, but in my sort of internship clinical work, I, I work with people of all ages and got some couples, some kids, some um, elders. You know, kind of kind of the whole nine. Sure. Getting a getting a wide bit of uh, wide bit of experience, and then in my research, so last year I had published uh, the spiritual harm and abuse scale, which I think we're talking about. Yeah, I would love to today.
0: to explore that yeah. some more. Sure
1: least a little bit. And so that's that's really that's a measure that gives basically uh, a clinician can give it to their client. It's free of charge. it's on my website. And there's some sort of normed scores. they're, they're not normed on a representative sample, but it, it can give some sort of a sense of kind of of these four types of potentially spiritually abusive experiences, what does your what did your client experience the most? and of these two types of sort of internal responses to that potential abuse, what are they dealing with the most, as well as some other what I call critical items, just things you might wanna know that you might wanna ask questions about for sure. client. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's that's a pretty good background right there.
0: Okay, no, that's wonderful. Um, And I wanna ask more about all that, but before I do that, can you just speak a little bit more about being a podcaster? I mean, that's how I kind of first that's found right. out about you. And <laughs> Yes, and, I and, host a
1: podcast <laughs> called You Have Permission. Which uh, is a great
0: a, podcast, everyone should listen to thank it. Thank you.
1: <laughs> it's about four and a half years old. And it started as really kind of like a faith deconstruction Mm. pretty firmly in that world of like giving people, laying out the various options for what they, you know, what, what people, mostly Christians, you know, but other people believe about certain topics. What are, what are sort of the range of options here? The tagline is like, people have been given a lot of bad answers to good questions and, and I like to tell people they have permission to to take Christianity and the modern world, by which I mostly mean science, okay, seriously. You know, so my, and, and it's still, that's still true. I would say it's a little less focused on like deconstruction as a topic or or a set of topics. Obviously a lot more psychology has come in over the years. Sure. And I've been more interested in that, but it's still a show essentially about, is there a way to be a Christian that takes science and other aspects of the modern world deadly seriously without mm. kind of ham fisting the Christianity or ham fisting the science? Like, can yes. you really do that? Um, and for me, that's usually psychological science.
0: Yeah. Well, and Dan, you know, I, I could sit here and just like fangirl forever, but w- one of the, please com- don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but w- w- one of the compliments I want to give you is, I, I think it's such a winsome approach to matters mm. of faith and psychology. I, I, I won't get too much into my background, but but I, I I was a part of the church. I was even a minister, but but have left. I don't know where I stand. I don't identify as a Christian anymore. Not even sure yeah. what I believe. But it is one of the podcasts that I still listen to that has a faith component, and it, and it's one that I'll even recommend to certain clients that I see that are atheist or whatever, just because like I said, it's so winsome and and just well done and and. You, you never force anything and, and you have people on from various different perspectives and you're not oppositional, which I think is so important nowadays. So well, thank you for what you praise.
1: do. I, I appreciate that. It is one of the values that I try and stick to. And I, actually I've, I've been kind of thinking about it recently and I don't think it's very popular in any of the sort of The various sort of corners of Christianity podcasting, be it the more kind of mainstream conservative stuff, which is the by far the lion's share of, you know, podcast downloads in in the Christian space. But even in the more progressive space where I live, it's pretty rare that that anybody interviews anybody else with whom they have substantive disagreement, unless it's like a debate show. There are a handful of debate shows like unbelievable out of the UK. But so that's something that I really like doing, and I, I, I have people on who are non-theistic, and we will sometimes do that. And those episodes are called I Don't Believe in That God. Those are like my favorite ones. <laughs> yeah. Those are some of my favorite ones too, actually. And then on the other side, I have ones called Worries About Progressive Christianity yeah. uh, or some variation of that where I talk with people who are more conservative than me and who are – you know for one reason or another, don't feel like – the kind of science informed progressive, you know, however you want to say classically like liberal Protestant approach that I take, you know, they, they are, uh, they are worried that that doesn't get the job done or has some sort of issues. And so we talk about that and I, those are really maybe my favorite episodes uh, in general to to do. And I, I like kind of surveying, I like building bridges, I, I like sort of doing that in a non-debate, non-argumentative kind of a way. So I'm glad that you pick up on that and enjoy those. Yeah. Because those are, yeah, my favorites
0: too. Well, whether it's, you know, if I do sometimes listen to other, let's say progressive Christian ones, or just, just any other podcast that's, that's more on the left, it can just be so oppositional and it can create these straw man arguments. I, I think I learned from you the idea of like a steel man <laughs> argument. And and I just thought that was Mm, so good. And and it's something that I try to model in my own life. I I don't want to just create caricatures or just an easy, you know, oppositional thing that I can tear down because, A, that's not fair. And I'm not sure it's doing much good for anyone.
1: Well, you've got a poster of Zeno uh, in in your backdrop. And so that just makes me think of, (laughs) you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle and, and the Greeks. And, you know, in that time it was the philosophers kind of versus the, the sophists. Yeah. And the sophists were these, you know, this is a time before television, of course, before radio, yeah. before recorded audio medium. And people would gather to hear people speak. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we still go to like, we go to stand up shows and, and concerts and stuff, but you know, and, and the philosophers, the way that they tell it anyway, we mostly have their side of the story. They were interested in truth. And the sophists were interested in persuading people and kind of, we might call it today like, it's like Tucker Carlson is Mm. the sophist, you know, (laughs) and maybe someone like Ezra Klein is the philosopher, right? Got you. I like that. Somebody who's like going going for truth, having difficult conversations, primarily being interested in like getting to the bottom of something versus primarily being interested in like burnishing one's own brand or in the sake of. Sorry, not in, in the case of, you know, I, I don't think that a lot of those progressive Christian shows are primarily interested in personal brand burnishing. I think that's true of a lot of political. shows. Sure. I think that what they are often doing is they are they are speaking um, out of a place of often deep pain and yes. hurts, which I obviously I get. I mean, I literally study. One subtype of that hurt. <laughs> yeah, I've experienced a lot of it myself. <laughs> mm. um, I'm I'm quite a few years removed from from the biggest sources of my own pain. OK, in that world. And what I try and do is be evidence based research informed. And if I do that, then I and, you know, you could say I'm sure you could talk about this, too, with your own clients. Like once you start working with clients, you do want some catharsis. Yes. You want to process the pain, especially if you've been avoiding the pain, you must process it. But then ultimately it's like, you know, I, I was looking on your website and you talk about solution focused mm-hmm. being solution focused. It's like, all right. Well, OK, then what? Like, how are we working to make your life better? Right. You know, measurably better, <laughs> experientially better, healthier, you know, integrated or whatever. And so. I always, I try and and have some kind of constructive approach on most episodes, you know, we'll, we'll do a turn at some point. Okay, yes. what's, how do we move forward here if this is an issue for us? So yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from.
0: Dude, that's an, okay, I know you said not to fangirl, but I just want to give you another compliment. You know, since I try to do podcasting at a much smaller level, and I'm also a therapist, so we have some connections. A I lot, think you do, yeah. I think you do a masterful job of, Giving people on your podcast space to just really talk and and it's not a gotcha podcast and, and they can really unfold their ideas But then you also are able to kind of navigate the conversation and move it to where I think you probably want it to go Or where you imagine it it could go And so th- that I know is not easy to do so so kudos to you for For kind of being able to
1: kind of accomplish that I appreciate that. Thanks. KK.
0: Yeah, of course. Okay, Dan, can we go back real quick to kind of your like undergraduate years. You said you studied philosophy. Mm-hmm. What were some of the philosophical traditions or figures that were really important to you that maybe even kind of got you into this theology you talk about?
1: Yeah. Oh, it's fun. I've never been asked that before. Uh, so I was coming out of an evangelical upbringing. I had gone to an evangelical sixth through twelfth grade. Okay. So that sounds awful. I was <laughs> honestly I there was some awful stuff in, and and the real sources of my own uh, spiritual abuse and, and trauma were in mm. that setting, and they and we can you know maybe we'll get to them later. They were regarding kind of end times teaching and rapture and Got left you. behind and all that just absolute horseshit. Um, <laughs> I mean it just really is it's just complete <laughs> bullshit. Which is kind of what which is sort of what clarified for me that the problem. Anyway, so coming out of that, you know, but I did have a quite a good experience. Mm. Uh, I I did not do well in public school and my parents sort of perceptively threw me in Christian school and that was definitely the right call sure. on balance. But I, I went to a secular university and studied philosophy, so it was quite jarring. First of all, I, I had, let's say, maybe a third of my professors were were at least like Faith friendly. Okay, Uh, they they didn't talk about their own faith as philosophy professors often are are extremely want to to do to keep that those cards very close to the chest because they're (laughs) they're trying to teach you how to think right. And I I I respect that. So I got into the Greeks immediately. Mm. Uh, My favorite professor in undergrad taught you know, it was philosophy 101, essentially. Sure. And it was a class that everybody had to take, including the majors. But basically, everybody in the school had to take some version of philosophy 101. And we went straight into Plato. Mm. And I love, you know, I use Socratic questioning with my clients today. I learned it then at 1718. And I so that was important to me. Sure. A sort of using logic and the, the structure of conversation to tease out truth. And then also I was reading Kierkegaard when okay. I was uh, an undergraduate. You know, I was dude, I was a I was a very emo kid. OK, not everybody is going <laughs> to know what that means. But if you know what that means, that was fucking me. So I was I was writing emo songs. I was very inwardly focused. I was dealing with uh, anxiety and depression mm. in those years. And Kierkegaard's journals that he wrote when he was in his 20s – Soren Kierkegaard, by the way, a grandfather of existentialism. I was going to say
0: he's one existential motherfucker.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean he's – he. They, they tend to think of him as kind of like the he's the precursor to what we generally think of as proper existentialism via mm. Sartre and, and others. So he's in the uh, 1800s in, in Copenhagen and he's dealing with a, a society there in Denmark that has become – it's officially Christian but almost all the sort of spiritual life has been sucked out mm. of that culture. And he's young. His journals are written when he's 20 and that's kind of before he, he comes to his big, you know, critiques and understanding and his, his usage of the Abraham sacrificing Isaac story and all the stuff that he comes to later sure. in his twenties. He's just fucking emo, dude. He is emo <laughs> as shit and <laughs> struggling with God and himself and, that was just really important for me uh in my late teens, you know around twenty, so that was really kind of and and still, I would say Kierkegaard still is incredibly important to me, probably the most important uh image or idea of his is the idea that like a a ship captain cannot pause the storm to figure out which way they will you know which course they'll set mm. The storm continues to rage and they must make decisions as the storm goes. And that is our situation in life. There's no pausing it to sort of get all our bedrock figured out and then have these perfect first principles from which to act or choose or whatever. Uh, we, We do it all in in vivo, in real time. Right. And so that's still that's still really important to me. From from that era.
0: Sure, sure, man. You're gonna think that I'm bullshitting you, but but I promise this is true. Just yesterday, I had a new client. I won't say too much about them, but they're they're a professor at a local university, and they said they found me, and they are absolutely in love with like a Kierkegaardian approach to things, and they imagined that I was someone that could engage them at that level, and so that's why they came so yeah it is cool like you know there's sometimes there's clients we don't connect with as much or you know we we struggle to relate to but i was like fuck yes this is going to be great
1: yeah so with with those clients i i and i will be honest with them like (laughs) i have to check myself because it's easy to turn it into like a rap session oh absolutely topics (laughs) always trying to figure out okay how does that how is this helping them you know what what is, you know, what? why am I asking this or saying this? Is it in their interest? Is it, you know, clinically relevant? But yeah, that, that stuff's fun. I've had a few clients too who are philosophically minded and um, in some ways that's that's actually worked out uh, yeah. to be able to kind of talk about that and engage on those questions because often they're very central for yes, people. Yes,
0: yes. Now, okay, going back to your interest in the Greeks, did you ever engage or kind of flirt with stoicism? And And, and part of why I'm asking that is, at least in certain therapeutic circles those that revolve around like CBT or REBT you know stoicism is pretty big and thinking through some of those kind of therapeutic interventions is that important to you at all do you have any reflections on stoicism i feel like it's kind of a it's kind of a social media thing now too for a lot of young men to get it's into buzzy. it it's yeah. buzzy yeah
1: it's buzzy i mean what do you think about this is stoicism sort of like our Western version of like Eastern detachment?
0: I've heard a lot of people say that, that it's almost like a Western type of Buddhism. I don't know that's not exactly what you're saying, but yeah, yeah. I, I think there's something yeah, that, to that for sure. The
1: emotional detachment from outcomes, you know, like that's that's kind of the, as I understand it, sort of the, the practical thrust of Buddhism. And, you know, so I I was of course aware of it because the Stoics are in the mix in that Greek world I think that in those years, I was still firmly ensconced in, you know, evangelical or almost evangelical Christianity. And so at that time, Stoicism seemed like, well, I got something more powerful than this. You know, I've got sure. like I got the real goods here. That's probably <laughs> honestly how I thought of it then. Mm. Now I'm I'm very intrigued. I've I've actually been very much helped by some of Ryan Holiday's work. Yeah, yeah I've actually met him. Author. He's great. OK, cool. Yeah uh the his book ego is the enemy super super helpful for me a little bit more in like a creative side than like a personal philosophy side but sure but still this idea of like for for my own work like for making the podcast or writing things or you know other creative projects like having the work itself be the reward sort Mm. of emotionally divorcing yourself from the outcomes which are dependent on all these other factors uh, of which you have no control kind of focusing on the thing with which you under over which you do have some control which is your own work that like that is really resonant and i use a lot of that kind of stuff with clients okay where you know i i usually frame it with the serenity prayer yeah the the wisdom you know what's in my control what's out of my control Being able to discern between those two things and then saving ourselves a ton of Wasted time and energy sure, you know trying to kind of roll a boulder uphill um, am I answering your question sort of right do you feel free to To slightly move me in one direction. Yeah, no, no, like no, you no you're, no, you're
0: totally answering and this is really helpful maybe one of the things I'm wondering too is would there be any aspects of stoicism or maybe the way that it gets fleshed out today in on social media or whatever that maybe is problematic for you or that you would want to kind of move away from?
1: I I don't know enough to say that. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not plugged in enough to like stoicism, TikTok or or whatever. (laughs) I would say like the general, you know, the, the general idea of, Hey, what is my, what is my actual sphere of influence? Can I have, more control over my own sort of emotions and life, you know, broadly speaking in an era where we are constantly entertained and distracted. Sure. Or at least those, we are constantly receiving bids for our attention. If it's not an advertisement, it's our phone notifying us that a tech owned app would like our attention for a while or whatever. Right? Like, that is a constant thing that you basically have to choose to opt out Absolutely. now of that stuff. And so in that very broad, basic sense, like anything that's kind of pushing back against that and encouraging people to have a bit more autonomy in choosing what they will and won't engage with. I mean, I'm I'm all for that. Sure. That seems commonsensical to me at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think one of the things that I struggle with, I don't think it's unique to Stoicism. I think it's, maybe you could talk about this. I think it's rooted in like Greek philosophy and kind of the ancient approach to things. I think you see it in Christianity at some level is uh, just kind of a, a maybe a, a negative view of the body, kind of a, a denigration mm-hmm. of like human sexuality. And and I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, you know, in your kind of studying of Greek philosophy
1: well yeah i to be i got to be careful here i am i never was and i am certainly no longer now a any sort of (laughs) philosopher or really expert in philosophical schools of thought so i can speak to the way that this works in evangelicalism much much better okay
0: yeah let's let's go there because because i think it probably gets influenced by some of that
1: stuff yeah i mean there's there's always been you know in christianity we call it gnosticism right right there's always been a gnostic thread the new Testament writers sort of rebuff it in the text. And then it's a really big deal. And again, I don't have a church history background, but I understand it to be one of the big heresies in the first 500 years of the church. This idea that like the spirit is good, whatever is of God and of the Holy spirit. And maybe however that touches our soul, you know, our immaterial soul, that stuff's all good. And all this stuff that has to do with our body that's sort of lower and worse. Uh, In some cases, it's like inherently bad or evil, depending on how you think about it. And this kind of will escape from our body to this kind of higher spiritual plane, either at the end of things or even during our lives, you know, here and there. That is problematic for a number of reasons. For me, chiefly, it's just fucking false. Like (laughs) everything that like, we just know now with a very High degree of confidence that everything, every process, thought, uh, religious experience, everything that we experience, not necessarily reducible to our brains, which are a part of our bodies, but dependent upon our brains, which Mm. are a part of our bodies. There is a brain event corresponding to every conscious experience that we have. Now, there are different ways of thinking, you know, it's it's possible that consciousness itself sort of can supersede that. Sure. I, I don't have a you know, I don't have a firm view there. But while we're here, it all very much depends upon our physical body. And, you know, we've known this since who's the guy with the stake through his head? Oh, Phineas something? Yeah, Phineas Gage. That's We've it, known yeah. since Phineas Gage <laughs> that like you change the brain, you change the personality. Absolutely. You, know, you change the perception, Um, you know, to use like CBT language, you you change someone's brain, you change the automatic interpretation of their sense data that, yes. that they will start with. And then they can change it themselves. You know, CBT, we 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 do the work to start to change those automatic interpretations and that works. But... It's all very much dependent upon the body. So, first of all, it's just factually inaccurate to to divorce them like that or to deny the body. And then there's like all the sex stuff, you know, coming out of evangelicalism. Sex is bad. Yeah, or could you go there for a little all bit? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know, purity culture is a is is a good term for sort of the like '80s, '90s into the aughts. You know, of course, it still exists today in in some circles, but it was massively popular within evangelical Christianity during those years. And it's the idea that like that the Bible and Christian teaching are clear that Mm. you should, no one should have sex before they are married. So you should remain uh, fully abstinent as, as much as possible until you're married. And only then uh, should you have any sex. And that further that, to go against that is to, in some sense, like sully yourself to lose a part of yourself to sort of loan yourself out to others and that this has like a- essentially uh, permanent damage effects mm. on a person's, whatever their soul, their spirit, their heart is used very loosely, Okay, you know, in those circles. And there's a lot of disgust psychology that gets used there to kind of motivate those points. Mm. There are some very creative readings of the Bible uh, to that are used to sort of justify that. And it also coincided with like the AIDS um panic okay. and other things like that. So it, you know, I think at a sociological level, it it gave uh, concerned Christians and others like a quick solution to a very, very scary what felt to them like an existential threat, uh, especially for their children. Got gotcha. you. So that's purity culture and that developed just an, an insanely unhealthy view of the body and of sex. And, you know, there, there are things to be said of course for waiting and many people choose to wait, you know, you, you'll never get an STD. You won't get unintentionally pregnant. Of course there are, there are sort of benefits there. Uh, but the whole thing is also kind of rotten at mm. its core and you, can lead to a really disordered understanding of our sexuality, our sex organs, sexual pleasure, uh, the, the role that sex can play or not play in people's lives. I mean, it's just, it, it's, yeah, it's almost kind of silly. Sure. Uh, now, the I, places I, it can
0: lead. I don't know if there's one like reality here, one kind of response, but, but do you have a sense of what ultimately motivates all of that stuff? like, Maybe it's different for different people, but do you have a kind of a theory or a thought on what was governing all that shit? What Was it really just trying to be faithful, I guess, to a certain reading of the Bible, or is it something else? Is it something philosophical?
1: Well, I'll, I want to reject one common claim from my side, from the left, which is okay. it's all about people trying to control other people's bodies. Got it. I think that that's part of it. Uh, I've, I don't think it's all reducible to that and you know for instance you can say men want to control women's bodies in patriarchal patriarchal societies that is absolutely true they also seem to want to control men's bodies and yeah, and oh, their right. own yeah patriarchy you know, like, is terrible for men too <laughs> it's bad for men too and yeah. and you know to the extent that these men follow the rules they are also denying themselves sexual pleasure 100%. so I, I think that's a i do think that's a part of it but i don't think it's reducible to that okay And speaking of patriarchy, I mean, this stuff is old, man. Like, most human societies over time have been thoroughly patriarchal and have been pretty conservative, we might say, these days. Now, historians and other people will tell you there have always been exceptions to that. And, and of course, like ancient Greece and ancient Rome are exceptions to that and had quite different, you know, sexual norms. But... But like even in ancient Rome, as I understand it, and in sort of the world that saturated the New Testament, uh, sex was ultimately about power for most people, about domination, where you stand in, in social standing. And that's also fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> so even though <laughs> they were more okay with gay sex than than you right. know we were in the 40s, sure. They were also like, well, you would never let a slave penetrate you. Mm. You know, you would like you would not let a woman be on top or whatever that might not be a real one but for instance like you know it's all about power and who and who's higher in the pecking order and that to me strikes me as really disgusting compared to mutual love and submission and and you know pleasure seeking uh with a with a partner that seems way more beautiful and (laughs) you know kind of like (laughs) just, just good yeah so the the whatever the impulses are Toward the kind of conservative sexual Ethic that purity culture embodied That's not new like that shit's Been around At least since agriculture I mean gotcha. I don't I don't know <laughs> much about Hunter gatherer sexual Norms I believe it was a bit more f- open And maybe some group parenting and stuff Like that you know but like Fucking that's agriculture Yeah fucking agriculture ruined everything But it's why we're able to to be Podcasters and do so telehealth therapies. So yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. Or do therapy at all. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's I think there's a lot of stuff. And, and I, I mentioned AIDS and kind of the the sort of sex, uh, sexually transmitted disease panic of the 80s and 90s and, and all that stuff, um, sort of post-sexual revolution panic on the right. Sure. sure that really uh, motivated it. And, you know, a lot of that is just parents wanting their kids to be safe. Sure. And not knowing where to turn. And someone gives them. Uh, an idea, and they go, "Oh, this is associated with Christianity. That seems reputable." I'm working fifty hours a week. I don't have a lot of time for this, but I'm worried about my teenager. Let's send them to youth group. Right. Let's send him to this. Let's send them to this conference or whatever. Like, how could this be bad? Mm. And they were wrong, but I could understand why they would have thought that that would be helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, Dan, I, I want to throw out this one, like, uh, I don't know if it's maybe a spiritual, philosophical, like, concept mm-hmm. that, that's really important to me. I think it comes from Ken Wilber, but people like Rob Bell and I think Richard Rohr talk a lot about it. Um, And, and I'm, I'm going to throw it out, and then I want to ask a question about about you uh, personally, um, yeah. if, if you're cool with that. So the idea yeah. is that a type of spiritual or psychological growth is about transcending but also including which I'm sure you've probably heard of Mm -hmm. when it comes to your evangelical background, what would be maybe something that is still important to you or that you still try to kind of include in your like life project, but maybe what's something that's really been either tossed out or transcended that you kind of reject. You don't really like, how do you think about those two
1: things? That's yeah. Great question. I am familiar with that transcend and include uh, language, so I don't, and I don't, I don't know if I'm using it right. So let's just say something. I'm like not that sure that. I'm I'm using it right. either. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, but so something that I have moved beyond is the idea that the Bible is clear. Mm. This is called the the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity, is technical yeah. Term that like the Bible is clear to anybody reading it in good faith that it will give them accurate knowledge about God and the world on a more on like a lighter version it'll at least give them all the accurate knowledge they would need for salvation or something like that and the the Bible just is not it's not clear yeah to use your phrase I
0: think that's horseshit
1: (laughs) there are passages of the Bible that are very clear and then there are other passages that are also very clear that disagree with those earlier clear ones. Exactly. <laughs> the Bible is not really a unified anything. It is a it is a collection of books written by different people at different times who share a, a common lineage and I would even say a common project of trying to make sense of what they see as God's work in the world initially through the nation of Israel and then mm-hmm. later through the life of Jesus of Nazareth and his followers and, and what they were up to after his crucifixion and, sure. and their experience of his resurrection. So that's a shared project, but that doesn't mean that they all agree and it doesn't mean that they're always right about everything. So that one I have transcended, I think. Okay. And you know, I, I have not, I've not kept that piece, but something that I have, I have, included and kind of redefined is, and and it might be one of the better aspects of evangelicalism. There is this language used all the time called personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Sure. And that's the thing that everyone is after. Yeah, you've got your religion. You've got your, the way that they would use it is you've got your dead empty ritual. Mm. uh, But what we found here and what we are hoping for you and for everyone in the world to have is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that term was never very well defined for me when I was in that world. But my joke is that it meant, you know, don't masturbate and do your quiet times every day. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it didn't only mean that. And and actually later when I started reading Catholic mm. writers and other like Christian mystics and the contemplatives. mystics, Yeah. That's kind of when that language was able to sort of come alive for me in, in in what I would call today, just sort of like direct spiritual experience, ok. You know, and that's through meditative or contemplative practices. but people also, some people are just smacked with mystical experiences out of the blue, as it were, uh, more common than we often think.
0: Mm. Um
1: and even people who have these experiences on drugs, you know, on purpose, sure, or accident people who have near death experiences or other, other types of um, kind of extreme conscious experiences, you know, this stuff um, but, but especially the, the cultivation of some sort of regular prayer or meditation practice that kind of, you know, if God is there a direct line to God, so to speak that like God, if God is real, then God is permeating every moment and every being, Mm. and is sort of accessible in in some sense. Not exactly in the way other people are accessible, but in some sense accessible. And I think that the research on the efficacy of religion and spirituality bear this out, that that that's just like a really fucking powerful tool to Mm. have. And it's been extremely powerful for me. I don't think of it in exactly the same terms, but I have kind of reclaimed that, language of personal relationship. Um, yeah, I I would never use those words now, but I recognize that that is what some of those people in my orbit were getting at. And some of the people that they liked reading like Dallas Willard, a little bit of Thomas Merton sneaking in here and there. Um, and I go, Oh, huh. I recognize that now in this kind of, I hope more mature phase of my life. And, so that one, I think I have included in, okay. in a modified form. Would you
0: feel comfortable wearing the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt? <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> okay. That, that, but that, that would just give me like 2006 hot topic, uh, uh, you know, PTSD, I think. Okay.
0: <laughs> now, okay, w- w- one of the things that I definitely wanted to kind of just ask you about and explore a little bit is, yeah, the work that you've done around kind of spiritual abuse and, and yeah, like, what what led to that? Where do you see that going? I mean, is is there going to be a book that maybe comes out?
1: So, there might be more. The problem is that I'm not done with my, you know, doctoral sure, work yet. Sure, and So it's like I feel a little bit like I don't want to, I don't want to cart horse it too much, and I also would like to get more clinical experience with clients okay. working through religious issues. I've had some. But I'd like to have at least a few years under my belt before I sort of pass myself off as some kind of expert on yeah. that clinically, which does seem to be important to the larger picture. Okay. So well the, the scale is, a, is more of a research project and requires a little bit less of that sort of know-how where I, I just combed all the relevant, you know, everything I could find on spiritual abuse in the peer-reviewed research and you know came up with this big list of prompts and and used kind of fancy statistical analysis to to pare that down to you know under 30 prompts and and give you know in the statistical terms like a valid and reliable um you know score and and, and whatever so there that's kind of the nuts and bolts. Were you also sure. asking about kind of where it came from or? Yeah, kind of more at,
0: at, a, at a, maybe more of an existential level, yeah, w- where it came from for you. Yeah, I- I- any, any ideas of where it might go? You just kind of answered that, but just in terms of yeah. your own passions and desires for knowledge and wanting to understand it better, kind of where you see it going.
1: Well, also it is exploding as a research topic. You know, have like a Google okay. scholar alert and I feel like something comes out every week or two. Wow. Whereas when I was doing my research, you know, two, three years ago, there was so little, you know, hmm. and, and so it's really exploding as a topic, which is cool. That means that a lot more great minds are, are, you know, digging into it and, and yeah. we're going to learn more where it came from for me was end times teachings, as I mentioned. So I, I had panic disorder as a kid course i didn't know that that was what it was called at the time and at at least as early as third grade you know struggling with panic attacks and in sixth grade somebody handed me a book at my christian junior high that was like predicting jesus's return the following fall and this was in the spring and i was 11 and that was uh fucked up and I couldn't handle it. I mean, it, it is, you know, in the in the Bessel Vanderkolk sense, it was a traumatic mm. experience, it sure. was an experience that my nervous system, including the cognitive parts of my brain could not make sense of. Mm. It was a shock to the system. It was like, wait, I'm going to be dead in six months. And <laughs> I am in sixth grade. And my whole, all the things that I wanted to experience in life, I'd never get to experience them. And that became the number one panic attack trigger of my life. Mm. Um, It's way, way, way better now. But for really over a decade, that was, you know, probably 15 years, uh, a recurrent problem for me. So when it was time to think about dissertation stuff, I looked into that. And as I was looking into that, I found that there was really just not much at all about spiritual abuse more broadly. And so okay. that that just took precedent, took precedence from a research perspective. And my um, dissertation advisor was like, I think you should develop a scale.
0: Mm. And I
1: said, that sounds scary. She said, eh, it's not that scary. I've done it before. So I was like, <laughs> all right. Let's fucking go. <laughs> there you so, go. So you yeah, know, she helped me, Dr. Lihua Edstrom. She's the co-author on the paper, and and she helped me sort of figure that stuff out. But yeah, it was it was a trip and actually really fun work. And I, I'm sure I will do some more. Okay. Some more research, in maybe in time. But that's after, where it came from. Yeah. for Me.
0: For okay. Awesome, stuff. dude. That's super helpful. Thank you for answering that. Okay, so I know a question that I really wanted to ask you to get you to unpack you say it all the time on your podcast Probably my favorite thing you say I use it all the time in therapy this idea that that religion is like nuclear power where on the one hand it has like the capacity to light up the world to do a lot of good but in the wrong hands or you know under certain circumstances it could literally blow the fuck out of everything and destroy everything and I just think that's exactly correct Could you kind of unpack what you mean by that statement and maybe flesh it out a little bit?
1: Yeah, so religion, just by its very nature, it just gets at the deepest stuff. Mm. So we could like take it from a cognitive perspective, it asks the biggest existential questions. Who am I? Why are we here? Where is this going? Take it from a narrative perspective. What story am I a part of? How do I fit in the story? You know, identity, where do I come from? Yeah, who deepest are my values. People? Values, right? So w- do I care for the poor or not? Should I be a Ayn Rand libertarian or should I be a Jesus of Nazareth, you know, upside down king- kingdom type sure. of person, right? So it's values. It's social network and mm. social connection. For people who are very involved in faith communities, it is usually other than their Sometimes it includes their nuclear family and their extended family, but if not, it's their it's the rest of their family, right And it's also a time of the week, you know if we are regular attenders where we spend time thinking about becoming the best version of ourselves. Mm. so back to values. But we don't just do that alone. we do it in an embedded community. We're all facing the same direction as each other, also all thinking about how to become the best versions of ourselves. Mm. If people have spiritual experience, that experience, um, the way that the way that we experience spirituality as human beings is that it sort of takes place in our innermost core. You know, if you think about something like internal family systems theory, where like the self is sort of the captain of the ship, you know, or you want to talk about that in terms of executive function. Sure. Right. Like that's the part of ourselves that does our faith. The part of us that is like persisting through time. Yeah. So it's got all these things into it. And then, you know, there are also issues with power and, you know, order in society and the way that that can be used uh, in bad faith by political actors and, you know, all that stuff, of course, too. But the reason that they use religion is because of, I think, because of this other deeper reality that it just is connected to the deepest parts of ourselves. Mm. And and it's it's, and it's almost and like, it's related to death, right? And it's related to death. One of the big those big existential questions. Right. What do we what how do we understand death? What happens after we die? Where did the people go that I loved who are now dead? Mm. Where will they go when they die? Will I be with the people I love after I die? I mean, these kinds of things and you know from like a From Like a what what is that called like a cross species psychological lens, you know, like a animal psychology lens or whatever Sure, this is the thing that as I understand this field which I am no expert in this is the thing that separates us from other animals um, Cognitively Mm -hmm. is that we can project out into the future much more successfully than other animals No question further into the future. We think about our own legacies we think about ancestors, both before us and to come. And, you know, so all it it gets at all that stuff. It is essentially the field of experience, thought, art, whatever you want to call it, that addresses the stuff that makes us human, you might mm. say. And so, yeah, it's fucking powerful. It's nuclear fission. And that's why. It is such a great tool for, for instance, coping from trauma and the literature is full of examples and studies sure. showing that and it is also why it can be used to such egregious and devastating harm mm. because it's just, it just is powerful.
0: Man, maybe this is too simplistic, but yeah, one of the ways that so many people get traumatized, but then also one of the ways that so many people cope
1: or manage their trauma, that's that's super interesting. I say, uh, someone else gave me the phrase, it's like, spiritual abuse is like being wounded at the hospital. Oh, man. So we want to make, like, I don't want to get it, I don't want to do away with religion. I think that that's actually irresponsible, an irresponsible read of the literature and the evidence. But I want to make hospitals safer.
0: Yeah. Basically. Oh, that's good. So I'm assuming, because I really wanted to ask you this, if you have time, maybe for one more. Um mm-hmm. When it comes to, like, the church or, like, spiritual communities, I, I think this is kind of a, a controversial one for me and for a lot of people who might be closer to the kind of the spiritual but not religious, the nuns. I, I think it's easy to point out all the negative things about the church or spiritual communities. You know, there's there's cults and all that kind of stuff or new oh, yeah. religious movements, I guess, is the, the, the more PC way to kind of talk about that. Mm-hmm. But Are are, are you kind of pro-church, pro-spiritual community? I mean, I'm sure you can kind of see the pros and the cons. I'm just kind of curious where you are with that, if you can get into that.
1: I think that our picture of the average person's relationship to faith is skewed, understandably, Mm. by the fact that so many of us came out of this uh, very powerful subculture or one of these few very powerful subcultures that did do a lot of harm. And we are the type of people who got out. So there's a bit of a selection bias there in terms of who the people are, who are mostly having these conversations, you know, on podcasts, you know, whatever. But when you turn to the most careful research, the peer reviewed stuff, the meta-analyses of hundreds of studies across cultures, you know, across languages. The overall picture is in my opinion pretty clear that for the statistically average person, both religiosity and spirituality are associated with a slew of good things. Mm. In fact, almost all the main good things we want for people. Social support, uh, less risky behavior, Literally, protection from disease. Mm. Uh, You know, and then the big one, as we've kind of already talked about a little bit, is healing from trauma. From trauma, yeah. It's a major source of traumatic healing and and post-traumatic growth for people. Which makes sense, like, given what we were talking about earlier. So, uh, an awful fucking thing has happened to you. Where might you find the language... To put that into Context in such a way that it could be helpful for you. I don't know Maybe the deepest things of yourself and life yeah. might that be a good place <laughs> to find that language Right, <laughs> right. No, Where no, that's else a great will point. you go? so so like Yeah, so I am pro religion pro spirituality in a general sense. Okay, there are of course <clears throat> types of religion that In That I would guess do more harm than good and uh, But there's also a lot of I think sloppy thinking Mm. um, Maybe for for very understandable reasons, but nonetheless probably sloppy thinking About or just a a failure to check the the evidence or maybe Mm. people don't know where to look for that evidence Mm. But you know the evidence does to me present a, a, a compelling picture that it's it's generally good for people there are obviously exceptions and like and a, a, a very clear one is like if you are a member of the queer community and you're at a church where <laughs> they're not going to accept you like it is probably not going to be a place of thriving for you you should probably get out of that church and if you want find another church that is sure. affirming you know but just for the, statist- the the sort of center of the bell curve person it helps people
0: mm. yeah so what would would you not that you are against anyone who's like spiritual but not religious or like the uh, identifies as not, the at not all. Yeah, yeah, not at all. But w- would a lot you, of my
1: listeners, for sure. I,
0: I would imagine. You know, I know I include myself in that boat, and it seems like a lot of your listeners are. What do you have? Not so much an apologetic for like the organized components of it, but mm-hmm. what, what's sort of your reason for? I think you still belong to kind of a faith community. Like if if you could speak to kind of why that's still important to you, that that would be really meaningful for me to just think about.
1: There are certain things that are harder to get outside of an organized situation. Absolutely. You know, here's an analogy. I have a gym membership (laughs) that I pay every month. I don't go very often (laughs) when I have to go to physical therapy or the times where I have done group personal training that meets twice a week. And someone is waiting for me there and it's costing me $75 instead of fifteen dollars a month, I fucking go. Yeah. <laughs> and and like, so that's part of it. Accountability. Got like you. if there's a weekly gathering, a bi-weekly gathering, you you'll you're more likely to go do the thing that is in line with your values anyway. Mm. There's a social component. People can find this in with close friend groups with family members and stuff sure but you know we do live in a time where we are in one sense more connected than ever but maybe in person less connected than ever so you get that Um, you get exposure to difference mm. church communities are not nearly as sort of culturally homogenous as chosen friend groups or interest groups mm. like a hiking group or something like that right you get, you have different ages, you have cross-generational relationships that you tend to get. Um, let's see. Uh, you know, you, I could keep going, but sure. it, it's, it's probably things like that. And, you know, we're, we're back involved in part because, uh, my son is now three years old okay. and old enough to sort of start having thoughts and experiences around this stuff. Sure, And I wanted him to start having Start having a vocabulary that I had some control over a a situation that I thought was healthy um, and helpful for him. So that's a part of it. And then for me, like just the having a reason to go through the basic liturgy, Mm. take the Eucharist, pray a little bit, think about my place in the world. It's just it's grounding. It's helpful for me.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome and beautiful. Okay, Dan, I am just so thankful for your time and and for this conversation. Before that's we sign off, man. man, thank you. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to share or any anything coming up that I could plug?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I'm I'm going to be at uh, Trip Fuller Home Brewed Christianity's Theology Beer Camp in okay. October. I believe that's is that in Missouri, Alabama, something like that. Okay. Um, and uh, so I'll be one of the the featured podcast hosts there, and, and doing some events. Cool. Otherwise, people can check out you have permission. Yes. Anywhere they listen to the podcasts. Okay. Awesome. All right, man. Oh, well, and the and the scale the scale is on my website. Yes. Okay. And I'll include the, the links yeah, Put on a link to list. that. If you're a clinician, you can use it for free. There's a description of it's it should be fairly straightforward to use. It takes about ten minutes to administer and score.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. Okay. All right, man. Well, I appreciate your time, and and uh, I hope that we can continue to connect.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Kike. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the podcast.
0: I hope that you were inspired and challenged by the conversation. I'd love to hear from you, and I would love to connect. The best way to reach me is to go to my website. You can go to Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y, that's com, and there you'll find all my contact information. Or if you just Google my name, Kike Autry, you'll find my Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram accounts, and you can reach out to me through those means. You can also check out the website of the practice that I work at, Katie Counseling for Men. That's com where I serve as the lead men's counselor, and you can reach out to me through that. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, or if you have any ideas on individuals that I could interview, please let me know. I'm always grateful to hear from my listeners. Uh, This wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you so much, and as always, continue the conversation.